0: This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I am talking to Sydney Ladenson-Stern about this absolutely wonderful book called The Brothers Mankiewicz, subtitle, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics. But it really is, it's just so much um, Hollywood history. It's a wonderful book, Sydney. Thank you for writing it.
1: Thank you. I loved writing it. I'm sort of having withdrawal.
0: Yeah, you took a long time to write this book. How long exactly did it take you, starting from the very beginning?
1: I find that such an
0: embarrassing
1: question to answer because it took me so long. It took about 10 years um, for several reasons, one of which was that most of the material was in California, and I live in New York, and the material was, a lot of it was in archives, which takes a long time to um, research if they're only open certain hours. You are not allowed to photocopy, so it's just a very prolonged um, process. Plus, I must admit, a couple of real estate transactions where I moved <laughs> and had to take time out and renovate and move, et
0: cetera. Well, and also the unusual circumstances that you are writing a dual, where you did write yes. a dual biography, and that also makes it complicated because you have so many more characters and so many more people to talk about.
1: That's true. I thought there would be much more overlap, but in the book there are very few
0: scenes where they're together. So
1: it really was like writing. that We start out with the same parents and branch out quite quickly.
0: So I guess I, the first question I have to ask uh, then is what got you interested in writing about Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, these two phenomenally important um, movie well, we'll call them writers first and foremost because they both were, but they were more than that. But what what attracted to you you to them? What got got you to be willing to commit ten years of your life to their story?
1: Well, I had no idea I was committing ten years. I had my first. Book took two, and my second book took three. So, and I hope my next book will take a lot fewer than than ten. But yes, they were absolutely writers. That was their primary identity. Um, so I'm glad that you emphasized that. I was a biographer in search of a of a subject, or sometimes I think of them as victims. Uh, my last was Gloria Steinem, and she was so complicated and interesting that I despaired of ever finding anybody as complicated as she was. And I ended up with not one but two really complicated guys. And why these people and why this area, I had not written on Hollywood. And it's kind of a it's not a closed industry, but there are certain people who specialize in writing Hollywood biographers biographies. There are the biographers who write a lot of them like Scott Iman. There are critics who are, who are also writers in the field, like David Thompson, and there are academics who are both critics, teachers, et cetera. So I kind of came in writing about the men and got to the movie and the industry through being very interested in these two people, as opposed to getting to the people through their movies. So my approach was very person-oriented and psychologically-oriented, although, of course, most of the writing is about them in the movie business.
0: But was it, I guess, was it the, did you have an interest in them that came from some somewhere else in prior, or did you, were you just sort of trying to figure out who to write about? And right,
1: right. Th- no, but what happened was um, a f- I was looking for subjects, and at some point a friend who's a biographer became the series editor for the University Press of Mississippi's Hollywood Legends series. And um, he sent an email to several, to a lot of biographers he knew saying, we're looking for submissions. And I kind of sloughed it off the first time thinking, well, I don't do university press. And then a few days later, I thought, well, what are you so busy with that you can, you know, not pay any attention to this? So I started looking into Hollywood history. And also, it's a huge Area and really requires a lot of background. And it, I always um, say it's kind of like if I decided to write a biography of a New York Yankee. There's so much baseball knowledge that people who are interested carry around that you wouldn't be doing the subject justice if you didn't know all that. So there was a huge learning curve. So anyway, I started looking at Hollywood people and I didn't want to do an actor. I, I wanted to do a creative person. And I was interested in Herman. I had interviewed. Frank Mankiewicz, who was one of his sons, for my Gloria biography, because it was political. And I knew about Herman, and obviously I knew about Citizen Kane. So I read Herman's biography. There was one published in 1978. And and I was really intrigued. And that led me to Joe's biography, which was also published in 1978. And by the time I finished Joe's, I thought, Wow, you know the sum would be greater than the than the two parts. I would love to do one of the two of them together, and that's how I got there.
0: Got it. Well, that makes sense, and and you sort of, I think what I was looking for was that Frank Mankiewicz, um,
1: oh yeah, you know, precursor
0: that you had. Right. That makes sense, and well,
1: unfortunately, um, I had interviewed Frank a couple of times for the Gloria book, and I quoted him a lot because they're all Mankiewicz's. It's a rule. They're smart and witty, so his <laughs> quotes were wonderful. And I said to him, you know, a couple of times over the years that I interviewed him. Thank goodness, I quoted you in a positive way. Otherwise, this would have been hard going, and he, you know, he would have told everyone not to cooperate with me, which would have been awful.
0: Right. Well, yes, it is an amazing family, um, and I think I, I, when we have talked outside of this uh, recording, you know, I've told you that I have some connections to them through. A variety of different ways, and they're just they are really an incredible family, um, unusual in so many ways, um, but always seemingly pretty funny, yes, um, and very writerly in outlook. I think, you know, uh, I think one of the things that struck me was the uh, well, I'm sorry, really jumping ahead because this is not this is out of sequence to the story which you wrote um you know from the very beginning to the end you did it um um you know kind of following the timeline but there was one uh part that I was rereading today that really struck me and that was the description of Josie who was Herman's daughter um who was unfortunately run over by a taxi cab at an early age, and the description of her was so, um, correct. you know, it just, it was perfect, and uh, described her as a writerly person in every aspect of her life.
1: Yes, they were watching all the time, you know, the little tick, 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 they were just taking in everything, and then you saw it come out in their movies,
0: all of them. So let's we'll go back, and I should really, you know, take you back to the very beginning, so you can talk a little bit about the background of Herman and Joe. What's really interesting to me is that they span such a different period of time. Partly because Herman is older than Joe by a number of years, so Herman goes back to the very well early years of silent film. 1920s, maybe we'll call it the heyday uh, of the silent film. Whereas Joe comes in at the very end of the silent film because he's so much younger than Herman. Uh, but Herman goes to Hollywood from New York, having been part of essentially the Algonquin Roundtable, you know, that whole literary community that, you know, they all are well known for being wits and acerbic and funny. And also drinking a lot, and Herman definitely fits those those characteristics as you you know describe him.
1: Yes, he was a perfect person for the Roaring Twenties, and the Roaring Twenties in New York. He was extremely witty. In fact, one of the my failed tasks was to think up a really clever title that would pun on Mankiewicz and Wits, and I never did come up <laughs> with one. But um, he w- Ben Hecht called him the Voltaire of Central Park West. He was very witty. And yes, the, the, the difference between Joe, J- Herman's dates were 1897 to 1953. Joe was not born to 19- till 1909. They were almost 12 years apart. So um, Herman was like a father figure to Joe. But Herman went out to Hollywood in 1926 At that point, he was 29, and he had a career as a newspaper man and a theater critic, and he was working on um, plays. He was collaborating with both George S. Kaufman, an Algonquin friend, and his boss at the New York Times in the theater section, and Mark Connolly joe went out in 1929 right after college he was not even 20 when herman brought him out so they herman really wasn't even there that long without joe but herman was there just at the end of silence as you say and in in silence sound came in in 1927 joe came out at the beginning of 29 but they were still making silent versions of the movies, because many of the theaters weren't equipped for sound, so both Herman and Joe started um, their careers in Hollywood writing titles those those captions for the silent movies, which was a perfect thing for them to do, but hardly utilized their formidable brain power.
0: Right, although they were their wittiness and their yes. ability to be pithy um, was noticeable, and I think that that was a, f- a kind of style. Of the uh, t- a lot of the titling had that kind of wink and nod, um, you know, as if you were taught, They were talking to the audience about the characters with this sense of being more knowledgeable than the characters in the film.
1: Yes, mischievous, kind of
0: ironic. Yeah, I always, I always thought that was a really interesting conceit mm-hmm. of the title writers. You know, that the writers there got to kind of. Look down their noses at the at the films themselves without ever really doing that.
1: Well, it's interesting because apparently it was very important. Even though these were simple little titles, they were very well paid because they could make or break a movie, Uh, and evidently they could also make it into a tragedy or comedy depending on the titles. So so that's really obviously they would cut. They might have cut things differently, but that's so interesting to imagine without spoken dialogue.
0: Well that that whole period of the end of the silent film the beginning of sound really kind of opening up the modern world you know it kind of the end of the first era of film and the beginning of we'll call it the se- you know maybe the second golden age of film mm-hmm. if the 20s were the first and both Herman and Joe were really important in the 1930s I mean, I looked at the, in the back of your book, you have a kind of filmography um, for both of, for each of them. And it's pretty incredible how many films each of them worked on over the course of that, that single decade.
1: Right, right. Well, they were, they started at Paramount and then they both, at the be- in 1933 for Herman and 1934 for Joe, went to Metro-Golden-Mayer, which was the healthiest one at that point. Paramount was really the most sophisticated. Metro golden Mayer was more um, rosy-eyed and um, and health and financially healthy, and so they were at the sort of the the best places to be as well, turning out prestigious movies.
0: So Herman, you know, struck. I mean, he's obviously. Well, I don't know. Maybe now, just because of the film that came out called Mank, which is about him. Um, he's more probably of a figure that people would recognize today. Do you think that's true? Well,
1: what fascinated me about the reception of the book and before the movie um, was how many reviewers focused on Herman, these long reviews that went on and on and on about Herman. Whereas when I was working on the book, I complained to anyone who would listen and probably people who didn't listen, that I had so much more material about Joe. Joe's career was more productive. He was a much more successful screenwriter and then director. His personal life had many more elements. He was, he was married three times. He had affairs with people like Joan Crawford and Judy Garland. And so on, whereas, and he won, and he had this record-breaking, I'm I'm jumping ahead, but a a record-breaking Oscar career of winning writer and director Academy Awards for A Letter to Three Wives, a 1949 picture. And then the following year, writer and director awards for All About Eve. It's a record that's never been met. Herman's trail was really cold. I had tons of material about Joe. I, I I spent all that time in the archives, because mostly because his widow had given all his papers. I had his diaries, so I had his view of his life from the inside out. Herman, I had to scrape, and, and w- one of the things I did actually was interview Josie's, his Johanna, Herman's daughter's friends, who were teenagers when Herman died, but they knew him. And they were giving me an adult's perspective on their memory. So that was valuable. But I complained, oh my God, I've got so much about Joe and not enough about Herman. And then the reviews came in Herman, Herman, Herman. So who knows? I think a big part of that was Citizen Kane.
0: You know, right. film
1: critics right. love to write about Citizen Kane. So.
0: Well, right. Because Herman, even though his career was much shorter, um, and he's more tragic, I think. I think that yes. that attracts people in some ways. The idea of the tragic.
1: Apparently, yeah, I wasn't prepared for that, but it's it's great. I, I love them both. And when people say, you know, who'd you like better? Whoever I was working on was my subject. I was very deep in whichever of the protagonists I was involved in writing about. I have great affection and respect for both.
0: And so, and you, you really think that their father was the most important figure for them. But I'm kind of curious about how you're, how you're able to piece that together. What you, where-
1: well, that, that was very humbling because uh, everyone had, who had written about them except one um, academic study were men. And everyone always said, the father, the father, the father, pop, pop, pop. That's what's important. And I thought, well, I'm a good feminist. I'm going to uncover the importance of their mother. They had two parents. She must have been important, and according to Joe, she was the source of their sense of humor. That she was a really good storyteller. But the father had a sense of humor too. And at the end of my research, I had to conclude that it really was all about Pop, their father. Um, He was a he was an. They were both both parents were immigrants. So Herman and Joe and their sister were all first generation Americans. The father was. Poor and struggling when they had Herman. And he, was, he had alcohol problems, which Herman certainly went on to have. And he was, what we would say, abusive to Herman. When Joe, by the time Joe came along, the father was embarked on his career as an academic, and he thought that was the highest calling there could be. He wanted both Herman and Joe to follow him into academia, neither of whom had any interest in doing that. And uh, but consequently, they always felt not that they should have been academics, but that they disappointed their father and that they should have done something that would make him prouder of them.
0: Do you think there was a uh, a fairly conscious view of them as being, you know, I think this is I've certainly seen this in my own family history that the um there was the idea that if you went, if you were in working in Hollywood, you know, it was like being in vaudeville. You were really uh, in the immersed in pop culture, and here you have the father who is a aspired to become an academic, to become respectable, and he was also German, you know, which makes it even more judgmental. I think that you know, did did they feel that from their parents that they were uh, kind of giving up? um you know the 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 best of themselves to uh you know drag their their brilliance into the mud of pop culture
1: well they didn't even need their parents to look down on it because all intellectuals looked down on hollywood at that point the stupidest play was considered art whereas the most profound movie and there were fine movies being made was considered entertainment it was like nickel movies came out of um Nickelodeon's it, right. it was it did it was a sort of up from the bottom art form but it did become an art form and in this day when every young person I know practically wants to go out to Hollywood and be a director a screenwriter or an actor it was looked down on and those who went to Hollywood were considered slumming also there was the element of um, that it was an industry so there were always compromises. Because it was Matt they you know they were they were making movies for mass markets, and Joe always complained it shouldn't be a business, but he never wanted to go off and make little art forms where you could do everything you wanted. He you know he he liked the perks of being with a big studio, so there was all there was. Attention, and they absolutely felt they were slumming, as did his, all his Algonquin Herman's Algonquin friends, who also went out there and made big bucks. He, was, he started at $400 a week. This is 1926 plus $5,000 bonus for every screenplay he wrote um, with a guarantee of four a year. So that's $40,000. He was making $80 a week at the New York Times. So, you know, you can see that it would be easy to throw yourself away. And when I first um, embarked on the book, I thought Herman was a quintessential screenwriter who went out as a writer and ended up staying and prostituting his talents and drinking himself to death. When I really studied it, I realized he already had the seeds of his own destruction. He was already drinking and gambling ruinously and would have done it in New York too. So it wasn't really Hollywood that Herman, that ruined. It was Herman that ruined Herman, but they always looked down on, on what they had done. And it was, my original title was When Life Louses Up the Script, which Joe used to say, you make all these plans and then life has a way right. of inter- interfering.
0: Well, the, yes, they do represent that um, fairly, you know, I, I think it is not common necessarily, but certainly I think writers are more prone to this idea that when they um, take the money and work in this um environment of collaborative um, commercial venture, that they are giving up their heart and soul for dollars. And there's a certain element of self-loathing that's introduced, and maybe that ends up contributing to the self-destructive lifestyle.
1: Yes, I think that's true.
0: I think that's still true. I mean, from writers I know many writers who have gone to Hollywood and worked in television, worked in film, but who really, really, really wanted to write novels. Uh, Yes.
1: Well, it's true because whatever you take, you know, it is, it is written for the corporation, whoever's hired you and they can do whatever they want with it. Whereas as a novel, you imagine you're going to be able to write whatever you want. And comparatively, of course you can. Right. Also playwrights have much more control over what they write. They, they, they have to be asked <laughs> to change things. It can't just be taken away and altered, as it was and is in in movies.
0: Well, no, that's true. And in film, as you you just you know you actually illuminate fairly well the um, the 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 interplay between the studio bosses and people like the Mankiewicz's um, was a pretty fraught relationship. Um, even though Joe and Herman accepted what they had bargained for they were still dealing with people who really didn't have an an ounce of artistic uh sensibility in their bones it was all about money and in theater even the producers will give you some credit for um being a creative you know but i still think in theater there's all collaborative art uh the money does have something to do with how the play or musical or film or whatever it is comes out in the end because it has to be shaped to the form that the commercial venue will accept totally totally but film is tradition film in their era was probably the the most obvious place uh, where that was happening or the most painful for uh so many writers and i think you know i think you know my father wrote a book about writers going to hollywood and it's all about the misery of writers who thought that they were better than um, hollywood but wanted the money the famous schmucks with
1: underwoods
0: yes yes it's very well known yes well the story is fairly uh emblematic you know that you you i mean you you're You know, that I think Joe and Herman were very much of that ilk, but they just happened to be, they were really good scriptwriters. They were really good.
1: Yes, but a lot of them were educated and they did look down on the producers and the executives who came up from, you know, a lot of them were uneducated or less educated immigrants. So the the people who were working for them, their employees, the writers did look down on them. Um, and that's why when Joe was made to be a producer, he hated being a producer. And I think it was more the identity of being a producer than his actual work as a producer, because he was very creative about it.
0: I think you also talked about Joe as a director, and it seems like he was really good at that.
1: Yes, he he wanted he came out to be a, a writer, and then when he went to um, MGM. The first movie he did was Manhattan Melodrama, which was a huge hit with uh, Clark Gable and, and Myrna Loy and William Powell. And it was not only a critical and a box office hit, but it went into the history books because John Dillinger, Public Enemy number one, went to it several times. It was his favorite movie, and he ended up being shot dead by the FBI coming out of that movie. So it sort of went into the history books. Joe then went on to write several more successful movies for them. So he went to Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, and said, could I direct what I've written? It wasn't that he had a great desire to be a director. It's that he had pride in what he had written and wanted to control how it went up onto the screen. And Mayer said to him a story, Joe told his whole life, you need to learn to crawl before you can walk, and made him a producer. So he, uh, producers were really the top executives at, at MGM. They were over the directors. They controlled everything. But Joe was a creative person, and he wanted to be down there creating. Um, that said, I think he, he, was, he contributed writing to all of the movies that he produced or had it rewritten, um including the Philadelphia story which you could be a, you know if he'd produced nothing else that would have made him a great producer but he wanted the he wanted the creative life and I think and he also wanted the credit for what he had written so that was painful for him
0: but I think being a a director and a of your own work gave him well even in times yes. when he wasn't directing his own work but it but he seemed to have this sort of sympathy and ability to relate to, you 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 pointed out yeah. that he was different than so many of the earlier directors who were Um, the kind of um, uh, giant ego yellers who would say, do it my way, and a million takes until you get it right, and what's wrong with you, belittling the actors and making them feel terrible. He noticed and was really uh, empathetic to uh, actors in wanting them to understand their, their part in the film. He didn't want to yell at them to do it. He wanted to cajole them to do it.
1: Right, I'm sorry, I got distracted on how he became a director. (laughs) Yes, he he um, talked quietly to each actor about what he wanted. And by the way, I I think he had very strong ideas about how he wanted his lines said and delivered. Although he would ask if they had other ideas and if there was something better, he would let them do it. But even intonations, I think he had strong ideas. But he was that's screaming and yelling wasn't his personality manipulating and, and falling in love with his leading ladies was part of it. And, and so the uh, actors did love working with him. In fact, he did four films with Rex Harrison, who was, he called him his Stradivarius because Joe loved writing high comedy and no one did it better than Rex Harrison. And he was a nightmare to work with, but he was, they loved working together because he did such a good job with Joe's dialogue
0: rich scripts well the stories uh in, i guess you it you could tell that you had more to work with with joe at least in terms of the filmmaking because there were so many wonderful stories about films that he worked on and uh, i guess you got a lot of that from his diaries um but that he there was just so many interactions with are actors who are now really, really famous, kind of iconic, that were just the people that he had to deal with at that time. I, I love the stories about Elizabeth Taylor and her requirements. Oh my God! And um, oh, it was was it um was it Rita Hayworth also? Um,
1: um Ava Gardner. Ava
0: Gardner. I'm sorry, it was Ava Gardner. Just incredible, classic, kind of projective, controlling uh, actors who. Took every because they were. I think actors were in the Hollywood studio system. They were really abused. So when they became um, stars, they they took it out on the studios to the best of their abilities to do that.
1: I think that's true. And in fact, that chapter about Barefoot Contessa, where where Ava Gardner was the star, I originally wrote that story. Um, Joe, uh, they were filming in Italy. And his agent and dear friend was in in Hollywood, and there was a great record of the filming of that because they weren't in the same place. So they were sending e- uh, telexes and letters, not emails, of course, right. at that point, <laughs> back and forth. That I had this huge record of what kinds of things Ava Gardner was demanding and how she was reacting and. So I wanted to do a, do a whole chapter of Dear Joe, Dear Birdie going back and forth. It was way too long and not interesting to others. So I had to condense it to what you saw of, you know, she has wants four servants and she needs fresh roses and she wants the heat on all the time. But that costs a lot and a drivers at her service, but she's not going anywhere. And, and then this was. But by this time, Joe was on his own, and it was his own production company. And she was costing them a fortune also because he had to borrow her from MGM. And MGM was very angry at him because he would had a big fight with them about a previous movie. So they extracted a huge fee <laughs> to uh, loan her out. So it was kind of a financial nightmare, too. It was a very funny uh, uh, sequence of um,
0: emails oh, it was, it was <laughs> of letters, letters. Et cetera, I okay. know it's tempting to say emails now because that's what we do but it right. was no is I, I think a lot of those stories are really um, a part of the joy of reading a biography is to get a an understanding of some part of their their actual lived experience and of course, because you're writing about Hollywood, <laughs> they're they're with people that we know something about. Whether we are accurate, whether what we know is accurate right. or not, is not necessarily relevant. It's just we we can they resonate for us, um, and so oh, so many actors that we've I've seen, you know, uh, your readers have all seen on now now television viewing of old movies, but they're th- this really brings a lot of them to the forefront, and I thought it was. That was really a wonderful element of the book.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that
0: was really fun.
1: Well, Elizabeth Taylor, when they were making Cleopatra, she was not 30 years old. And yet, basically, Cleopatra was supposed to save 20th Century Fox. By now, this is the end of the 50s, the beginning of the 60s, and the studio system is in trouble, way in trouble. And um, her demands, her illness the the studios forcing joe to make the picture when he hadn't completed a script was a complete mess and then suddenly she falls she and richard burton fall in love and behave totally irresponsibly i kept thinking about lindsay lohan because lindsay lohan is nothing compared to what went on right with elizabeth taylor's power in this situation
0: no that's true so one more one thing i wanted to ask you about and just because it's so much a part of Joe's life was this his affairs with actresses, um, which I think kind of is a pattern, obviously. Um, yes I but, think you
1: call it a pattern. Yeah.
0: But but how did you feel about that, you know, kind of with a I guess it's hard not to be judgmental with a modern view of people in the past. But um, you know, it's I, I just it's so different well, maybe it's not so different, but it's just, you know, if that was happening today, it would be really looked at differently than it was then.
1: Well, I don't I, I'm asked about this a lot because of the me too issue. And um, those affairs were not like that. He was not exploiting his position. He he genuinely fell for these women and and he they were stars. And he was a writer at first, and then later he was a director. But he was, these affairs were not for them to advance their careers. These were two already powerful people or um, powerful in their own um, jobs. Joe was older and smarter and more manipulative. But he, he would have, when he had an affair with Judy Garland, for example, he was trying to help her get out from under the thumb of Mayer and her mother, who were very abusive to her. He wanted her to get psychological help, and she did for a while, which actually led to him being pushed out of the studio. And before that, with Joan Crawford, a lot of the, and later Linda Darnell, when he started directing at 20th Century Fox, these women considered him the love of their lives. They would have left whatever husbands there were in the picture for him. And and they remained friends, so these were not really exploitative affairs. However, they were not victimless crimes, since he was usually married, so it wasn't very pleasant for his
0: wives. That was sort of where I was going with that question. It wasn't so much trying to applying uh, um, modern feminist politics, but more the interpersonal. I just feel like there is. It's just hard to read about that kind of serial. Um
1: uhlandering, serial phandering. Yes. yes. Right?
0: It is it is just kind of striking, I have to say.
1: Yes, yes, and I and I did think about it a lot. I was trying to think why? Why does he do this? And when I asked some man at some point, looked at me like you because he could.
0: Because he could. No, that's <laughs> he, the answer, obviously. Very,
1: yeah, he was but, very appealing to women too, I would
0: say. But his he also the the terrible thing that he said to his sons about you know that, that like why would you um, like why go why do a, star, a starlet when you can do a star I mean that's yes. just I just it's so it's representative of a male uh, outlook from in much earlier time than now obviously um, but it it was just striking I couldn't help but. Feel yes. it as a kind of visceral, um, uh, just it's just part of their lives. I know that, but it's hard not to feel it.
1: Yes, but I don't think Joe saying that to his adult children was the same Joe who fell for the for for the women. I, although they were all, it was interesting to me. I'm a first wife, first of all, so I'm thinking, how dare he? <laughs> <laughs> but Herman had one wife. And it was a very equal marriage. Was she as brilliant as Herman? No, but it was it was a, it was a marriage of equals. All the women that Joe had affairs with were it would have been hard to have been his intellectual equal, but he was younger. That you know he did want that Pygmalion kind of. Relationship and he loved that. He loved trying to help them and teach them, but he didn't seem to want a sparring partner like a Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn right. kind of relationship.
0: Right. No, that's no, that's right. I think the Pygmalion um, uh, nature is exactly what it was. That make and that makes sense. It's a sort of projection, and it does have to do with power and insecurity and control, um, which obviously he needed. Um, so I guess now that you've written Hollywood, um, or these two really important Hollywood characters, do you feel like you're, you're going to continue, uh, exploring Hollywood characters for your biography work, or are you going to venture to a different area of, um, of writing?
1: I would like to stay in Hollywood for at least one more biography because I love it. It's fascinating. And I've spent all these years really learning it. So, yes, I would like to write another book about Hollywood. And I have a couple of ideas, but I can't tell you.
0: <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> I'm that's, sure
1: people say that all the time.
0: No, but no. Yeah. I think sometimes it's better not to talk about it. Um, yeah before you know while you're thinking about it also you don't i think with biographies there's a certain competitiveness too because um often it turns out that if you're interested in a subject somebody else is out there and you don't want to let them know that you're doing it
1: oh we're vultures for sure
0: (laughs) So, well, it was really, this was fun. We could have gone on for a long time because there's so many things about the Mankiewicz's that we haven't touched on, but I think it's a, it's a wonderful book and it really, I, I really w- liked the way you structured the novel or the book. It's not, I'm not a novel, but it reads novelistically, you know, that there's a, a kind of entry into their lives that's very natural. And I really appreciated the way you did that.
1: Well, thank you. I, I did love writing it. And as I said, it's, it's hard to leave them. But if you meant that I start with a, with a flashback, I absolutely, all, both of them love to use flashbacks. Citizen Kane, All About Eve, lots of Joes' other movies have flashbacks, and all my books do too. So I felt a kindred spirit. Right. If,
0: <laughs> well, it's a good way. No, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good beginning. To look, I mean, it is, it, it does have that kind of rich tradition to it. Um, so many films start with flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Joe said he liked it because it shows the importance of the past on the present, which I thought was a very good Ooh, articulation. That is good.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Well, thank you so much, Sydney, for taking the time. This was really fun. And um, I hope we'll get to talk again about your next book. This is Writer's Cast. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Sydney Stern about the brothers Mankiewicz, hope, heartbreak, and Hollywood classics. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. I've loved talking to you.